Well, on December 5th, 1986, there was a gentleman by the name of Walter Wyatt Jr. who got in his Beechcraft airplane to fly from Nassau to Miami. Now, normally it's just a 65-minute flight, and he'd made the trip several times before, as I understand the story, but on this occasion, he climbed into a plane which was missing its navigational equipment. Some thieves had stolen it, and all he had was his compass. He was an expert flyer, so he thought he would be okay. He took off, but after he'd gotten airborne, all of a sudden his compass began to gyrate, and he thought that he was, after a while, lost. So he dipped beneath the clouds to try to figure out where he was, and as he dipped down and he was flying along the oceans, he discovered, sure enough, he was lost. And then, as fortune would have it, his engine went out, and he crashed into the ocean. He spent 10 hours through the night circled by sharks, wondering if he would survive. The next morning, in desperation, he was crying out, and a ship happened to find him, and he was picked up, and he survived the episode. Now, life is like that sometimes. We think that it's going to be just a 65-minute, smooth sailing, short trip, and then we find ourselves in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by sharks, and we wonder if we're going to survive. Now, that's the situation that the Thessalonian believers were in as Paul was writing to them. And if you've been following along over the last several weeks as we've been working our way through this book, then you know by now that they were encountering adversity. They were going through persecution. It was like they were in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by sharks, and they wondered if they were going to survive. And so Paul writes this letter to them to encourage them, to strengthen them in their faith. And now we come to the end of chapter 3 this morning, and what I want you to see is Paul's prayer for these early believers as they're going through the, the difficulty and the adversity that they were encountering Now, last week, we saw Paul's prayer for them in verse 10. And he said, night and day, we pray most earnestly for you. If you had the King James Version with you this morning, it says that I prayed night and day exceedingly for you. But what I want you to see here today is that this wasn't just some kind of ho-hum, casual prayer for these Christians We need to be praying for one another. And Paul was lifting them up in prayer. Notice that he was praying for them frequently. Look at verse 10 again. Night and day. And he was praying for them fervently, exceedingly. And this is an interesting Greek word. This word exceedingly or fervently is a description of a river which has overflowed its banks. Now, we got a lot of rain last night, right? I woke up someplace between 2, two and 3 a.m., and, and I was listening. I thought, I think it's raining outside. It rained almost all night last night. 
if you're a fisherman and you went out on a, you go out on a lake later today, you go out to fish on a stream, chances are those rivers are overflowing their banks today. We've gotten a lot of rain. That's this Greek word. It means to overflow your banks. And so he prayed fervently. His prayers were overflowing their banks for these believers. And he prayed frequently and fervently for them. He prayed earnestly for them, not flippantly. Now, we need to be praying for each other regularly, frequently, just as Paul was praying for these early believers. But we especially need to be praying for each other when we're going through problems. And these believers had encountered turbulence. They'd ended up in the ocean. They were surrounded by sharks. They were going through difficulty. We especially need people's prayer, their fervent, frequent prayers when we're going through difficulty or we're struggling with something in our lives. And so this is what Paul is doing for these believers. He lifts them up in fervent prayer. William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, tells a story of a little servant girl. He came to know the Lord Jesus Christ at a young age. She didn't know what her spiritual gifts were. She really didn't know how she could serve the Lord, but one thing she could do was pray. And so somebody was talking to her on one occasion, and this is what she said. She said, when I go to bed, I take the morning newspaper with me, and I have that newspaper in bed with me, and I read about all of the births. And so I pray for those names and the families that have just had babies. And then I read about all the marriages. And I pray for all of the people that have just gotten married in the newspaper. And then I read about all of the people that have just died. And I pray for their families, the people who have struggled with somebody who's, they've lost a loved one. And I lift them up in prayer. And William Barclay says this at the end of this little story. He says, no man can ever tell what tides of grace flowed from that little servant girl's attic bedroom. You see, prayer is the ministry. Prayer is ministry. We need to be lifting each other up in prayer frequently and fervently, exceedingly, not flippantly, as the Apostle Paul was, the Thessalonican believers here in this passage of Scripture. Now, as we look at verses 11 through 13 this morning, I want you to notice that Paul goes on and he prays three specific things for these early Christians. And the first thing that he lifts up is in verse 11. He prays for God's guidance. If you have the NIV version this morning, this is how it reads. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way, or if you have the King James Version, it says direct our way for us to come to you. Now this is also an interesting Greek word. It means to make level or to make straight. And notice that Paul is praying that the Lord will make level or make straight his path so that he can connect once again with these Christians that he loves so dearly. He's praying for God's providential guidance in his life. Let me ask you, 
How many times do you ask God to direct your way? In the midst of daily life, how many times do you hit the pause button and actually ask God to direct your path? We get so busy with daily life that God just becomes an afterthought, doesn't he? Somehow, you know, we make the, church, the scene at church on Sunday and we, we talk about God over the weekend, but then we get to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we get so caught up in daily life that we forget to hit the pause button and just ask God to direct our path. Notice that that is what Paul is doing here. He's asking God to direct or clear the way for him to make straight, to make smooth his road so that once again he can connect with these believers that he loves so dearly. How many of you make the, the, the trip, the road trip up to Albany at least once a week and you've been on 85, this, at least at some point in the last month or two? Then you know they've been doing some road work up there, right? What were they doing? They were making the road level or smooth so that it will be roadworthy during the winter. We saw the same thing on 411 just a couple of months ago, didn't we? They were smoothing out the road. That's this Greek word. We need to be asking God to providentially direct and clear the way for us in the details of our lives. And that's what Paul is doing here in this verse of Scripture. George Mueller great man of faith, said, when you pray, you need to ask God to do three things. Ask yourself, is this the Lord's work? Is God in this detail in my life? Or is this just a pathway that I'm going down and I haven't even asked God about it? Is this the Lord's work? Is this the path he wants me on? And then the second question he said you should ask yourself is, is this the Lord's way? Not only is this the Lord's plan, am I on the right path, but, but am I doing it in the way that he wants me to? And then the last thing you need to pray is, is this the Lord's time? You know, sometimes it's the Lord's plan, and it may be the Lord's way, but it's not the Lord's time. And so we need to be flexible under his providential guidance in our lives and go with the flow however he wants to direct us, however he wants to clear the path. So often we, we just don't hit the pause button. We're not asking God to be involved in the details of our lives. Philip Yancey tells an interesting story of a guy who went out to swim one evening at dusk. And so he's out there just paddling along in this pond, and he's out for this leisurely swim. It's dusk, and all of a sudden, this fog sets in. And he realizes that he can no longer see the shore, and he begins to panic, and he gets scared, and he begins to swim this direction, but he doesn't know where he is. And then he floats on his back for a little bit, And then he begins to swim in that direction, but he doesn't know where he is. And this fog has settled in, and so he can't see the shoreline. And then, after about a half an hour, he hears these voices on the shoreline. 
And he realizes, ah, so that's where the shore is. And he's able to, to swim to the shore and to save himself. Many times in life, God will allow the fog to settle into your life because you're just out for a leisurely swim. It's kind of like getting in that airplane and you think it's just going to be a 65-minute drive and yet you end up in the middle of the ocean. Sometimes God will allow the fog to settle into your life intentionally. He'll allow failure or sickness or some challenging circumstance to come your way because he wants to get your attention. He wants you to listen for his voice because, you see, we not only need guidance. You know what we need? We need the guide. We need the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to be consulting him daily in the details of our life, and that's what Paul is doing in this verse of Scripture. He asked God to clear the way. Elizabeth's dad is now 93 or 94 years old. I guess when you get to be that old, you kind of lose count. But one of the things that impresses me about her father, and I call him dad because he is like a dad to me, is that to this very day, one of his favorite passages of Scripture is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 which is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not under your own understanding. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him. Seek his guidance. Clear my path, Lord. Direct my way. Humble dependence on the Lord in the midst of the daily details of life. Now, notice the second thing that Paul prays for these people. He prays that they will grow in God's love even more and more. Look at verse 12. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way. May he guide us to you. And then he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Let me ask you, were the Thessalonian peoples a loving group of people? Were were these believers, these Christians, were they a loving group of people? Absolutely. If you remember our study in chapter 1, they were described in that way. We're going to see in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 4 that they were a loving group of people. If you look at the second Thessalonians, the second book that he wrote to these people, you're going to see them described as a loving group of people. So why would Paul exhort them now that their love would grow more and more if they were already a loving group of people? Why would he do that? That would be a little bit like walking up to a, a big NFL lineman who's six foot six and weighs 290 pounds and saying, you know what? You need to get bigger. You wouldn't tell a person that big, you need to get bigger. They were already a loving group of people. So why would Paul say you need to grow more and more in your love? Well, I think he does it for two reasons. Number one, we all need the kind of love he's talking about. The Greek word for love here in verse 12 is the word agape. And we all need to experience God's agape, his love in our lives. And we need that unconditional, 
kind of love that God has for us, we need to experience that in our relationships with one another. And we can't get enough of it. God created us to share and to experience that kind of love. And so he says, grow in your love. May it increase and overflow in your lives. And then the second reason I think he prays that is that even though we may be a loving group of people, just like they were a loving group of people, we can never love each other enough. We, we need to be sharing God's love with one another consistently and constantly in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about God's love. And he was talking about an issue in the, in the church at Corinth at that time. They were having a, a debate over whether or not it was right to eat meat offered to idols. And this is what Paul says, according to the Phillips version, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. He says, Now to deal with the matter of meat, which has been sacrificed to idols. It's, not easy, to th- it's easy to think that we know over problems like this. But we should remember that while knowledge may make a man look big, it's only love that can make him grow to his full stature. For whatever a man may know, he still has a lot to learn. But if he loves God, he's opening his whole life to the Spirit of God. So many times in the body of Christ, we'll have a difference. Should I eat meat offered to idols or should I not eat it? And we have a difference of opinion and we end up in conflict. And we think that the solution to the problem that we have or the disagreements that we get into is more knowledge. Oh, I know the truth. I know the answer to that question. This will be the solution to the situation. But nothing could be further from the truth. The answer isn't more knowledge. The answer is more love. Because we'll always have some things that we're going to disagree on this side of heaven. And love covers a multitude of sins. Even those times where we offend each other in our relationships with each other. And so Paul prays that they will grow in their love more and more for one, for one another. John Gardner, the chairman of our elder board, has been talking about a lot recently about God's one another plan. There are a lot of little one another's in the New Testament. And he's been exhorting us as elders that we need to get better at at following God's one another plan here in our church family. You're smiling, Russ, because you've heard him say this. And so I started counting up all of the, the one another's in the New Testament, and there's 31 on this little sheet of paper alone. And I think there's more than that. Things like... uh, Love one another. That's what we're talking about right now, isn't it? Love one another. Things like depend on one another. Be devoted to one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Don't judge one another. And the list goes on uh, on and on. If we live out God's one another plan, then we are growing more and more in the love that the Lord wants us to have for each other. And that's the greatest witness that we can have is our love for each other. We Siegler 
wrote a book some time ago called One Inch from the Fence. And in this book, he talks about being in an intensive care waiting room. Look at the end of this verse of Scripture. Who are we called on to love according to this verse of Scripture? Look at verse 12 again. And if you want to get out before 11 o'clock this morning, you're going to have to come up with the answer to the question. Who are we called on to love in this verse of Scripture in verse 12? One another, and then who else are we called on to love? Everyone else. And then look at the end of verse 12. Who models this kind of love? The apostle Paul and his team, they lived out this kind of love. They weren't asking them, he wasn't asking them to do something that he wasn't already doing. And so we're called on to love not only one another within the body of Christ, but we're asked to love everyone else. I hate it when the Bible always has one of these categorical commands like everyone and all. I mean, really, Lord, everyone and all? I mean, I could do it if it was someone and somebody, but everyone. But that's, that's, that's the, the model here. That's what he's talking about, and that's what he's praying for them. And so life sometimes is like living in the intensive care waiting room. Sometimes you have a difficult time just liking that other person. But when you're in the intensive care waiting room, all of a sudden you realize what's really important. And this is what Wes Siegler writes. I spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room watching with anguished people listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How often or how do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And I'm looking out here this morning at people in our church family that have been through some physical difficulty or you're going through some crisis in your life right now. When you're in the intensive care waiting room and maybe you've been there with somebody you really love, then you know life stops. I've been there as a pastor with people. And it's like what's going on out in the world doesn't even matter anymore. All that matters is what's happening inside this emergency room or this intensive care room. And so people in the intensive care waiting room, they can't do enough for each other. No one's rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first, a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife just as much as the university professor loves his wife. And everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else in the intensive care waiting room. The world never changes. Vanity and pretense no longer exist. Everyone knows that loving someone else is the most important thing in life. What if, what if we lived each day like we were living in the intensive care waiting room? How would we look at that person across from us differently? How would we treat them in a different way? 
You know, life really is like the intensive care waiting room. We're waiting for the Lord's return. We're waiting. And it could be today. And so we come to the end of this passage now. Look at verse 13 and what Paul prays finally for these people. He prays, number one, for God's guidance. Then he prays for God's love in their lives. And then notice he prays for their holiness. His third request in his prayer is, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Now, if you've got your Bible open and you've got a real Bible, a paper Bible with you this morning, you're not just getting it on the phone, okay? And I'm not biased, okay? It's, you can get your scripture on the phone too. Underline that word blameless and underline the word holiness there in verse 13 because that's Paul's final prayer request this morning. God's guidance in verse 11, God's love in verse 12, God's holiness here in verse 13. And he prays that God will strengthen their hearts so that they will stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ and be blameless in holiness before God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This word blameless means to be without accusation. It means nobody can make a complaint about you. Wow, wouldn't you like to live that kind of life where nobody could, could file a complaint against you? You live such a good life that, that nobody could, could even bring up anything negative about you. That's what he's talking about here in holiness. And this word holiness is only used three other times in the New Testament. If you look at the last page of your notes, that's where we are now, the top of the page. And if you look at that little Greek phrase there in the, in the second paragraph, it's only used three other times in the New Testament. And you know what it describes? It describes a sanctuary. You know what a sanctuary is? A sanctuary is a room that's different than every other room in the church. We're in the sanctuary right now. The sanctuary is the room which is that room that we come into to worship God. And that's this word holiness. Our lives should be a sanctuary. They should be an example of his holiness in our relationships. And so Paul prays for this. I love the way Tim Keller puts it when he says, worship is pulling our affections off our idols and putting them on God. And when we pull, pull our affections off of our idols, all of that stuff in our life that we worship, that we find valuable, and we put it on God, then our hearts and our lives become like a sanctuary filled with God's holiness. And we live blameless lives to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice what our motivation is. Look at the very last phrase there in verse 13. That we may be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his holy ones and his parousia, his appearance with all his holy ones, with all his saints. 
And here we have the story of the Lord's return again, and we're really going to get into this now here in a couple of weeks as we get into chapter 4. But Paul ends chapter 3 with this thought again of the, the second coming of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Vistatum sent me a very interesting video this last week. Did you send that to very many people, Vi? Okay. So you, you didn't send it to everybody. I, I, I want to get everybody's email address because I want Vi to send the same video to you that she sent to me, okay? It's called a three-minute walk around the White House. And it's fascinating. You take a three-minute walk around the White House and you go to Washington's monument and you go to Lincoln's Monument, and you go to Thomas Jefferson's memorial, you go to the Capitol building, you find all of this scripture, all of this stuff, and it forms the shape of a cross. It's just fascinating. And one of the things in our Capitol building is, it, is the words, in God we trust. But another thing that's in our Capitol building, in the dome of our Capitol building, is a little phrase that says, one far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. And you can see that at the top of the dome of the Capitol building. One day, a tourist was walking through the Capitol building, saw that phrase, and asked the tour guide what it meant. And this is what he said. I think it refers to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that that phrase is at the top of our Capitol building? One far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. All of history is headed someplace. Jesus Christ is coming again. All of history is moving in that direction. And it could be any day that our Lord appears. And so our motivation for this life, this blameless holy life, is the appearing of our Lord with his holy ones, with his saints. He's coming again for you and me. When I was a pastor in Oklahoma City many, many years ago, many times I would try to get off alone to pray. Paul is praying in this passage of Scripture. And one of the places that I would go to pray was a place called Southern Nazarene University. There'll be some Nazarenes in heaven along with us. <laughs> the Baptists have it right. <laughs> Nazarenes just kind of, well, they've kind of got it right, right? But you know what? God's going to have people from every denomination if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've trusted him today, you're going to be there, I'm going to be there. And so I used to go over to this, this campus, this, this Nazarene campus, and they had a little prayer chapel. And I'd often go into that prayer chapel. And on the walls of the prayer chapel, there were little white cards that were just posted on the walls and you could walk in and you could just sense God's presence. You just knew that God was there in that prayer room because so many prayers had been lifted up over the years, people on their knees crying out to God. Paul cries out to God in this passage. He's praying 
for his fellow believers. We need to be praying for each other. And he prays three things. And we need to be praying these three things. We need to be praying for God's guidance in the daily details of our lives. We need to be praying that God's love will overflow in our relationships. And we need to be praying for each other that our lives will be holy and blameless because Jesus Christ is coming again. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, and my last thought today is that as we become people of prayer and as we follow Paul and his example of prayer, I pray that our lives would become a sanctuary. I hope that we can hold on to that image as we leave this place today. Yes, we're in a sanctuary right now. But the image here is that you want our hearts and our lives to be a sanctuary that houses your holiness, that exhibits your holiness to your glory. May we live that way. May we be that way this week, Lord, in everything that we do. And may we bring honor and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand now. We're going to sing our closing hymn, number 438. We'll sing the first and the last verses of this hymn, Cleanse Us. And this is a prayer. Let's sing it together, number 438.